0: A lot of women think that estrogen is the most abundant hormone that we have, you know, it's responsible for our breasts and hips and about 400 other tasks in the body. But the truth is testosterone is the most abundant hormone that we have. So even though men have more, you know, on average, about 10 times more, women are still exquisitely sensitive to it. Welcome to Better
1: with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization and becoming more of who you already are. Every week we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Bettys, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today I am interviewing Dr. Sarah Gottfried. She is back on the podcast for round two. And Dr. Gottfried is a medical doctor, board certified gynecologist, researcher, and educator. She graduated from Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts Institute of Technology and completed her residency at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Gottfried has had many New York Times best selling books, including The Hormone Cure, The Hormone Reset Diet, and Younger. And she is back today to speak about her latest book, Women, Food, and Hormones. And as you might guess, it is an excellent conversation, especially for my betties who are looking for answers around the ketogenic diet and how it pertains to women. So we started off our conversation really uh, unexpectedly starting to talk about why there is so much discourse and disagreement uh, in the medical and healthcare community around hormone imbalance. And it seems in the year 2021 for many practitioners to say that hormone uh, imbalances in women do not exist with such, you know, with such fervor and vitriol in some cases, unfortunately, Uh, and particularly there seems to be uh, a bit of an attack from some of the more, you know, I'll call them valiant defenders of an old dying allopathic model, uh, especially when there's a lot of more integrative practitioners such as myself and Dr. Godfrey. So we start, we start talking a little bit about that. um, And I, I thought that was an important piece of our conversation because a lot of you are going to go to practitioners like this who have a philosophical premise that this is all in your head. It's psychosomatic or, uh, you know, supplements are garbage, whatever, whatever the party line that they're towing is. So Dr. Gottfried really broke this down in terms of why this may be happening in a very eloquent way as she does. And then we moved into some of the hormonal derangements that a woman in her perimenopausal menopausal years might experience. So we talked about the declining levels of testosterone. We talked about the declining levels of growth hormone and what some of the signs and symptoms that may present with. And we also got into discussing the, what she calls the keto paradox, where there's sort of an unfair advantage that men have when it comes to long-term carbohydrate restriction. And she talks about the testosterone advantage and she talks about the increased stress that women have to deal with and how that can influence a woman's, um, prognosis or a woman's uh, experience on the ketogenic diet. And we go through her Gottfried protocol in terms of how to do keto for women. And Dr. Gottfried is someone who is As you will see, if you haven't heard her on the pod before, make sure that you go back and listen to our conversation on the brain body diet, which is her previous book. We'll put a link for the episode in the show notes. But as you will very quickly see, very well spoken, very well researched. And she speaks about her own personal experience with the ketogenic diet and how she actually gained weight on it when she initially was doing it as, uh, as the guys were doing it, you know, we all sort of started off like this and now she has more of a nuanced approach to help her women uh, be able to successfully be on the ketogenic diet while supporting hormones, while supporting neurotransmitters, while supporting the unique and beautiful female physiology that we have. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sarah Gottfried on women, food, and hormones. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving B Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just tastes like water, and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Sarah Gottfried, I am just thrilled to welcome you back for round two on the podcast. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. So happy to be here.
1: Yeah. And when the last time we had you on, we were talking about how we can optimize for our brain health. We were talking about the brain body diet. And now you are back talking about your latest book, Women, Food and Hormones, which I've had the pleasure of having an advanced copy and... I'll just say right from the get go, it's a wonderful read. Like it's totally accessible. You don't have any, what I might call like kind of snooty language, like anybody can read it and take, you know, and kind of take a lot of value and implementation, um, into their lives. And you talk a lot about hormones, which I'm so, so happy that you did. And we're going to talk about, um, some of the tenets of the book, um, as well today. I'm really happy, really excited.
0: Thank you. Thanks for reading the advanced copy. I so appreciate it. And I appreciate your your uh, your wisdom and your book and uh, the time that you took to to read about this.
1: So yeah. thank you. Awesome. So let's start. Uh, I actually uh, want to start before we dive into some of the tenants and the verticals that you talk about in Women, Food and Hormones. I want to talk a little bit about this persistent idea that we see with Um, you know, we see it with online experts, we see it with female doctors and they talk about this idea that, um, hormone dysregulation in women, you know, doesn't really exist. Like this is sort of, it's calories in calories out. That's really the only thing that matters when we're talking about weight loss. And, um, a lot of the times we see men talking (laughs) and we see men saying, oh, it's just, you know, Seco, it's just calories in calories out. But we also see, unfortunately, female doctors, um, who have the same designations um, as you. Like we have like gynecologists and very prominent ones at that talking about this idea that things like estrogen dominance don't exist or hormonal dysregulation um, is, is not um, really at the root. This is just a, uh, you know, a play to sell supplements. You know, that's sort of the, the theme that I hear. And I wanted to start off asking you, because when I look at your your breadth of work, you know, even just the content that you put out on your Instagram for free for anyone to consume, you talk a lot about hormones. And I wanted your opinion in terms of why do you think hormones are often dismissed, you know, or not weighted in in the manner that they should when we're designing programs for women?
0: Yeah, it's such a great question. It kind of gets to the core of this book and what's offered in this book. You know, I I went through the same training as those very people that you're talking about who dismiss the idea that nutrition can affect hormones, that hormone dysregulation is part of the struggle that many of us as women have with weight. And, you know, we're all looking at the same literature. So in some ways it's surprising to see these very blanket statements about Uh, the lack of of existence of some of these conditions. Let's just take a few examples here, because I think that's helpful in terms of getting specific. So if we talk first about what I think of as disestrogenism, so having an imbalance with your estrogen, usually having too much relative to progesterone, but it could also be, you know, the type of estrogen metabolites that you have. What we know is that, you know, John Lee originally coined the phrase estrogen dominance, and it was defined as the number of molecules of progesterone you have in your saliva compared to the number of molecules that you have of estradiol. And if there's an imbalance, if you have, you know, less than a ratio of 100 to 1, then that is a suggestion that you have what he called estrogen dominance. But if you look at the literature, and I've looked at this pretty thoroughly, I've got thousands of citations in my book, and you look at something like breast cancer, oncologists are well aware that dis-estrogenism, having an imbalance with your estrogen, is one of the primary causes or factors when it comes to breast cancer. So that's, I think, one example of the way that in some ways, mainstream medicine misses the mark. So, I had the same training. I don't fault these clinicians. I was told that you shouldn't check hormones because they fluctuate too much, uh, you know, just sort of throughout the day and day to day. And the truth is, if someone's trying to get pregnant, if a woman's you know, in her premenopausal reproductive age and she's trying to get pregnant, we check all the hormones, right? We look at estrogen on day three. We look at FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. We look at thyroid. We sometimes look at cortisol and DHEA because we know that those are factors when it comes to fertility. So my feeling is that there's a double standard here, which is if you're not trying to get pregnant, we basically blow off this idea that hormones are part of metabolism, part of the energy that you create, part of these biochemical processes that you have in the body, and that it only is relevant to check them if you're trying to get pregnant. Now, I'm just going to call that patriarchal society because I, I think that's that's part of the issue here. And It wasn't until I was in my 30s, when I was struggling with my own metabolic hormones that I realized, okay, what I learned in medical school and residency isn't sufficient. I need to dive deeper here. And you know, you take a hormone like insulin, there's no debate that insulin is the most important metabolic hormone. And yet, how many mainstream physicians are actually measuring insulin in their patients? Very few. So I think there's a double standard and that's what I hope to address with this book. I wanna close that gap because it's enough already with women suffering with their hormones and not getting the help that they need.
1: Yeah, and I think you know that's the progression of science, right? We have a premise, we think that to be true until we can layer on more information that maybe gives us a more fulsome, maybe a more robust picture of things, which I think your, your work does the entire span of your career, truly, but this book in in of itself, because we're talking about metabolism, body composition, and the impact that food has on, you know, all of those things. And for many women, perimenopausal men, like, you know, our audience, very much a perimenopausal menopausal audience. And they've been told the things that we were, what, that we've been discussing that, this is just, just buck up. It's just part of, you know, part of getting older. This is what happens when you're a woman in her forties. And, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Like I completely reject that. I completely reject that menopause needs to be this egregious, you know, hot flashes and, you know, my life is over and her sensuality and her, you know, body composition, everything goes, uh, you know, to the toilet. So um, this is what I love so much about your book, because you're very thorough in kind of debunking and going through each of the hormones, which we will go through, uh, through this conversation as well.
0: Yeah, I love that about your work too. And, you know, One of the things that we know is a factor as people get older is that there's a significant risk of Alzheimer's disease, right? It's twice as high in women versus men. We think the reason is hormones. Right. And, you know, are you just going to lie down and let that happen to you? No, we're going to do something about it. We're going to do what we can To modulate those factors that put us at an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. I happen to have it in my family. And so I want to do everything I can to turn off some of those genes that push me in that direction to, you know, address inflammation You know, what Dale Bredesen talks about is 36 holes in the roof that lead to Alzheimer's disease. So I think that's a good example of this idea that we're told to just buck up and kind of suck it up as we get older. No, you have a choice here. You have a choice, and there is science behind it. It's not like this is just, uh, you know, someone's expert opinion or good ideas. These are based in really sound, rigorous scientific data.
1: Awesome. So let's get into metabolism um, and metabolomics. So, if we have a woman who's saying, Listen, I'm 45, um, I can't lose weight the way that I did when I was 25, like something, I feel a shift happening here. What might be, and in the book, you have a, a metabolic questionnaire to sort of start people off. And we don't have to go through the whole questionnaire, but what are some salient um, you know, clinical pearls or clinical signs of hormonal imbalance that might, you might be starting to think, okay, this woman might have some metabolic issues, some hormonal or metabolic capacity that needs to be improved upon.
0: Yeah, there's a long list, as you described uh, from the book. But the things that I think of right off the bat are uh, carb cravings. So craving sugar, craving refined sugar, craving comfort food that tends to be insulin talking. So when insulin is not in a a Goldilocks position, which I think of as about five to seven, if it's above that, which was the case for me when I was in my thirties, if you have insulin resistance where your cells become numb to insulin and then the level of insulin rises in your body, that tends to make you crave carbohydrates. It also makes you hold on to fat no matter what. So (laughs) it's very hard to burn fat so I would say those are the two key signs that I think of in terms of metabolic hormones. There's another one that is maybe a little more subtle, which happened to me and I would say happens to a lot of our patients, and I'm sure you've seen this too. And that is women who have a strategy that they've used in the past when they wanna drop a few pounds or you know maybe they gained weight with the uh, pandemic and they're trying those old strategies to lose weight And they just don't work like they used to. So that's a sign that your matrix, kind of the, you know, the the combination of your genetics and your biomarkers, your exposome, those aggregate exposures that you have in your body, the cells in your body, just are a little different than they were when those old strategies worked. So maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe it was 20 years ago, but those same strategies no longer have the effect that you're after. So those are a few of the signs. You might have a favorite or two uh, as well. What what are your favorites in terms of metabolic hormones? It's
1: it's really what you just described. It's the inability to lose weight no matter what they do. So they'll say, "I'm eating the same amount of calories that I did five years ago, ten years ago, or you know when I had my children." You know, I've just been steadily gaining weight since you know and. Pregnancy and childbirth, I mean, that's a whole other podcast, but that is a hormonal tornado, right? So we have this whole thing that happens with pregnancy, childbirth, and then not to mention the sleepless nights until the child starts, you know, develops its own circadian rhythm and all of that. Um, So I would say um, one of the more common things is like the thing I used to do, if I needed to get, if I needed to slim down for a party or a wedding, I would calorically restrict, or I jump on the, you know, treadmill, just run, you know, run extra a couple, you know, for two or three weeks, I could, I could drop that five pounds that no longer is sufficient. Or I'll hear something like, ever since I had my kids, it's my body's not the same. My fat deposition has changed. Like where I store fat is different. And I still can't, I can't seem to, no matter what I do, whether it's caloric restriction or any type of diet, no matter what type of exercise regime I'm doing, I can't seem to like bring it back to pre-pregnancy.
0: Yeah. There's so many nuggets in uh, your riff there, Stephanie. Uh, a couple I want to call out. So With uh, I'm so glad you brought up pregnancy and postpartum because that was the case for me. I just couldn't lose weight after I had my first kid. And um, I used to think that, you know, it was related to delivering that beautiful baby and the placenta and your hormones going from sky high down to almost nothing. When you go through that process, it's a bit of a preview of coming attractions with perimenopause. right? Right, right. But it also is a stress test, and this is something that I think is newer in terms of the literature, in that pregnancy itself, where your cardiac output increases by about 50%, your uh, insulin resistance goes up, what we know is that it is a cardiometabolic stress test, and some of us marginally pass the stress test or we fail the test. And that shows up as things like gestational diabetes, it shows up as preeclampsia, can even be um, preterm labor and delivery, delivering a baby that is small for gestational age. And I remember when I went through my first uh, pregnancy and I did that glucose loading test around 27, 28 weeks, my score was 134 milligrams per deciliter. The cutoff is 135. Yeah. So I was failing that cardiometabolic test and I didn't know it. And my OBGYN didn't know it. I was an OBGYN, she was an OBGYN. She said to me, well, stop drinking juice. So I think that idea that, you know, not being able to lose weight after you have your baby, that's a big part of this story. And as you said, circadian rhythms, I think are another important piece because those get disrupted as well for the woman. Some of us, especially with the clock gene variant, really have a hard time with that in terms of the effect on metabolism. And you also mentioned calories in, calories out, which is you know this uh, kind of outdated notion that many of us grew up with. What I would say is calories do matter, but they don't matter as much as this bigger picture of what's going on with your metabolic hormones. So we have to consider both. And you know, when I get asked, what should I do when I can't lose this weight? What should I do when I've got these symptoms of metabolic dysregulation with my hormones? The answer is eat for your hormones. Like let's design your lifestyle and your nutrition so that we can support your hormones in the best possible way, which is really the crux of this book.
1: Yes. Yes. Very well said, and I agree with you. I think that we need to be. Of course, you can't just have eight thousand calories every day. Like nobody's saying that that would be an appropriate strategy. You know, a lot of people think, well, keto, you can just have all the fat you want, and it doesn't matter. Calories do matter, but as you so eloquently described, I think that there, you want to be eating for your hormonal composition right now, and then as you change, as your You know, we're going to talk about, um, you know, your morphology or your uh, what you call your metabolomic type as that changes, you can also begin to nuance and alter the way that you're eating to support your new, you know, morphology and the way that you're the way that your your cells and your hormones are behaving. So let's start with growth hormone. And yeah. in the pre-chat, I was like, I'm so happy you talked about growth hormone <laughs> because this is, we have sexually dimorphic livers. Like we are different. Men and women have different livers. We have different GH, um, IGF-1. So let's, let's first start with like, why is growth hormone? What is growth hormone? And why is it important to consider um, when we're thinking about weight loss and body composition?
0: Well, I'm glad you're so excited about growth hormone because I certainly am and I haven't written about it before. So this is my fifth book, both uh, testosterone and growth hormone are uh, things I haven't written about before other than testosterone as it relates to polycystic ovary syndrome. So growth hormone I think is really fascinating. I started to pay attention to it maybe about 15 years ago and I've been tracking growth hormone in my patients. What does it do? When you're a kid, it helps you grow. So it's responsible for your height. And we all probably have heard of kids who don't make sufficient growth hormone. They're given injections to help them get to the height that they are genetically programmed to get to. But as an adult, it's involved in a number of different functions. You know, based on the name growth hormone, it is involved in the growth and repair of many of the tissues in the body, including muscle. So along with testosterone, it's involved in muscle mass. It's also involved in how that relates to fat mass. One of the things that people notice when their growth hormone starts to decline as they age is that they have more belly fat. And there's a number of other signs as well that I talk about in the book. I won't go through every single one of them, but, I'll just mention a few because it's fun, I think, for readers to maybe look and see if they have any of these signs. This is on page 47 of the book. So, Do you notice signs of premature aging such as saggy face, thinning lips, uh, droopy eyelids, and wrinkles? Do you feel less inner peace and calm? So as growth hormone tends to decline, a lot of women experience more anxiety. Now there's other factors involved. I think of insulin, I think of glucose, I think of estrogen. You know the estrogen receptor alpha tends to make us more anxious as there's less stimulation of estrogen receptor beta. So there's a lot of hormones involved, but growth hormone I think is one we want to be considering. And then you may want to look at your hands. So I always like to kind of look at the muscles of my hand and uh, what you want to see is whether there's any thinning muscle in your hand, Uh, reduced muscle tone, especially at the palm of the hands, just beneath the thumb and under the little finger. So that's what we're looking for. There's a a longer list of some of the things that can be telltale signs of issues with growth hormone, but I, I think that hits the highlights.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, there's one um, that you wrote that I love when you pinch the skin at the back of your hand, does your skin pop back or does it sort of take, is it delayed and it sort of takes its time to come and flatten out again, which is kind of what you're talking about. You're talking about atrophy of the thenar and the hypothenar muscles. And then, you know, does the skin have that elasticity, which growth hormone is a part of as well? So talk to me about how growth hormone is different for women. So you talk about this in the book and I, I think that this is so fascinating. I remember, um, I can't remember who it was on the podcast. It might've been, uh, Dr. Ethan Weiss, we were talking about the paper uh, in Cell that talked about these um, rat uh, when they were, when they started changing the pulsatile nature, they were giving them exogenous uh, GH and they literally changed the way that the liver of these mouse models um, uh, worked. So talk to us about how growth hormone is different for women um, than it is for men. And what are some ways that if we are starting to notice, you know, atrophy of the muscles, uh, if we're starting to see the sagging skin, what are some things that we might consider to begin to amplify and bring that back up again?
0: Well, let me first say that um, I think Ethan Weiss is probably one of the experts when it comes to the sexual differences between growth hormone in males and females. And so I want to encourage your listeners to go back and listen to that podcast because I think he does such an excellent job and he definitely is more of an expert at it than I am. What I know is that the pulsatility is just different in women versus men. And what I see, this is less a sex difference, maybe more a gender difference. What I see for a lot of my patients is that as they go through their 30s, hit 35 and their 40s, right around 45, unless they're doing some of the things that you teach women to do. What tends to happen is they make less growth hormone and some of the things that stimulate growth hormone, like getting certain uh, proteins, like whey protein is an example that raises both growth hormone and also testosterone, unless they're doing burst training, high intensity interval training, especially with weights unless they're doing some of those diet and lifestyle things, their growth hormone tends to decline faster. So those are some of the sexual differences as well as gender differences that I see in my patients. It's really common for me to test growth hormone. We have to test it as IGF-1 because it's more stable than growth hormone itself. But when I test my patients, I see this decline much more, uh, it's much more aggressive in women than what I see in men as they're aging. So I take care of both men and women. I also take care of a lot of executives and professional athletes. Definitely see that this is more of an issue for women compared to men. What do you notice? Have you seen something similar? I think that for
1: women, um, I don't test as often for growth hormone as maybe I should. But I think that it's all of the things that you're, that you're describing where we are starting to see, you know, changes in mood, changes in strength and power, like grip strength is one of the things I test for naturally. Um, And that's, you know, sort of the thenar and the hypothenar muscles and the, uh, the integrity of the hands. So for me, I think that I am a big, you know, I'm a really big fan of, as you said, burst training, high into high intensity interval training. And you talk about this in the book where for women, we can actually be very efficient with this. You know, when we talk about the release of growth hormone, as it relates to exercise physiology, we, you know, there's, there's one area that we have, I think a bit of an advantage and we can be a bit more efficient. Did you want to talk about the timing and the peak, uh, release of growth hormone as it relates uh, when we look at men versus uh, women?
0: Well, why don't we talk about it together? It sounds like you have something specific in mind.
1: Sure. Yeah. What I was, um, what I always tell, uh, my women when we're talking about increasing testosterone and increasing growth hormone is you only need about 20 to 30 minutes. When we talk about that peak, uh, release of GH in women, um, you can do like a 20 minute, like very high intensity workout. And you're going to profit from that spike and that peak of growth hormone. Whereas the guys, they need to do like a 40 to 60, like they need to complete a whole workout so we can kind of get in there and out, um, which satisfies a lot of women who are like, okay, I'm homeschooling and I'm juggling a career and I need to cook and I need to do all these things. So that's the, that's the thing I'm very excited about when it comes to some of the differences in the, um, in the release of growth hormone between men and women.
0: Yeah, I, I love that you are bringing this up because we know that, um, you know, I think throughout your work, you really focus on leverage, like how do women actually have leverage instead of this disadvantage when it comes to metabolic hormones? And this is a great example of it. Women are just more efficient at getting that release of growth hormone. And um, and frankly, I prefer a 20 to 30 minute a burst training uh, round of exercise to longer because uh, I find that longer workouts set me up for a greater risk of injury and I can really maintain my focus for that 20 to 30 minutes. Um, you know, the other factor that I think of here too is that fasting, I know we're going to get to fasting. Fasting is another way to leverage the release of growth hormone. And as with all hormones, I probably should just say this, since um, since we're talking about the levels of these hormones, we want to find that Goldilocks position where growth hormone is not too high, but it's also not too low. So we want to find that right level that's personalized for the individual, not some you know level that we recommend across the board. But you know, I like to look at a woman's level of IGF one and then set some goals in terms of how we wanna increase it. And the issue here is that, you know, I remember when I first started going to some of these anti-aging meetings where they talk a lot about growth hormone, they even sometimes advocate injections of growth hormone. And I always was a little freaked out by that because I felt like, well, isn't it more effective to leverage your diet and lifestyle first know to see how far you can get with nutrition with burst training with fasting with these other measures rather than to you know immediately go to the pharmaceutical and we know that there is some increased risk associated with taking growth hormone as a medication in terms of cancer so we want to find that goldilocks position we also want to personalize it to the individual yeah and you go in the book you talk
1: about your own sort of igf1 like raising protocol through exercise. And it, I thought it was so brilliant because you talk about, you know, you mentioned that you have this predisposition to injuries. And one of the things we know about growth hormone is also very sensitive to core body temperature. So you talk about doing this warm up and then you go into, you kind of describe the protocol. But what I find also very interesting is even something like sitting in a sauna you know, even though that might be a bit extreme and not, you know, available to everybody, but if you're able to, you know, sit in a sauna for five or 10 minutes, have an, a a measurable change in your core body temperature as a woman, when you now go and do that burst training, that augment, you are going to be able to augment that IGF one, which is, as you mentioned, a proxy for growth hormone, um, much more, uh, uh, robustly, right? Then you might otherwise, if you were to start like lifting weights or like doing your sprints with, uh, you know, on cold, to- uh, you know, uh, tendons and joints.
0: Yeah, such a good point. I, you know, this is another maybe gender difference that I see in my patients that a lot of women just don't sweat much after they turn forty. They uh, they're not exercising the way that you and I love to, or for whatever reason, maybe their DHEA is lower. Their testosterone is lower. They're just not sweating as much as they used to. So, I'm a big fan of using saunas for a number of different reasons. We'll get to the ketogenic diet and how I think that needs to be adapted for women. But one of the things that we know is true when it comes to a ketogenic diet is that women really need to have their detox pathways open, they need to be detoxifying. And I think Saunas not only help with the growth hormone and with warming up your tendons and ligaments and reducing the risk of injury, they also help with getting your sweat on and helping with that detoxification that I think is so essential when it comes to wrangling your metabolic hormones. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't
1: have access to a sauna, you know, one of the hacks, and you actually mentioned this in the book is something I like to do as well, is the hottest bath you know, or shower that you can tolerate and then, you know, maybe sit in there for as long as you can. Maybe it's 15 minutes, maybe it's 20 minutes, and then wrap yourself up as you're sweating. Cause you don't realize you're sweating when you're in the water. Right. But you are starting to have these cooling mechanisms kick in and then wrap yourself up. And then you talk about going into bed and like continuing to read a book, but you're still continuing that detoxification, which, um, we're going to talk about the Godfried protocol and how that's sort of the first tenant, um, with the detoxification opening up the pathway. And that's a really nice hack. So if you are someone that's like, okay, like, I don't have room for a sauna in my home, you know, or I can't, it's closed, you know, the place is closed where I used to go to get my sauna on. You can do that in your shower. Like you can have a really hot bath or a really hot shower as well. That's right. Yeah. All right, let's talk about testosterone and then we'll get into, and then we'll get into the god protocol and why keto is not the same for women. Um, and I wanted to talk about testosterone. Um, as you mentioned, uh, you've taught, you talk about a lot of different hormones, but when we're talking about uh, metabolomics, I think we do, we want to consider growth hormone, very important in terms of how to learning, how to manipulate that for women. And we also want to talk about T or testosterone, because this is one of the hormones that, you know one of the most, it's, we got, we got more of it than estrogen, you know, like even though we phenotypically ascribe estrogen to, you know, the, this is the female hormone, we have more testosterone, um, and let's talk about the role that T has in our body composition, um, our mood, um, and our, our motivation. Can you speak to a little bit about uh, what, you know, the role of testosterone in, um, our metabolism and then what naturally happens to a woman perimenopausal years, menopausal years with, with testosterone?
0: First, I want to echo, uh, a point that you made, which is a lot of people, a lot of women, think that estrogen is the most abundant hormone that we have, you know, it's responsible for our breasts and hips and about 400 other tasks in the body. But the truth is, testosterone is the most abundant hormone that we have. So even though men have more, you know, on average, about 10 times more, women are still exquisitely sensitive to it. So I just wanted to highlight that point that you made so beautifully. So testosterone is involved in so many different things. I think of it as a major multitasker. I was just talking to a patient yesterday who uh, we've been talking about her testosterone for a while. She's a woman who's 52 and she's uh, gone through menopause about three years ago. And she was saying, you know, I think my testosterone is incredibly important to who I am as a person. And I agreed with her because... She's someone, she's a female executive, she's uh, a risk taker, she has a lot of confidence. You know, she walks into these rooms with Fortune 500 companies and uh, her testosterone, I think is responsible for confidence, agency, definitely sex drive, that's, you know, sort of what it's famous for, but it also is a major part of her sense of vitality her mood, her stable mood, not feeling depressed. So what I see with testosterone is that some women start to decline, especially women who have been under chronic stress, toxic stress. We can see it begin to decline in the late 20s. So normally testosterone can go down about 1% per year after about age 28, that can be accelerated if you have excess stress. If that excess stress is driving up your cortisol and your insulin and you're eating more sugar, that can drive the testosterone down even faster and lower. So, you know, some women just have this decline that it can occur way before menopause. It could be in their twenties, their thirties. Maybe they notice it when they're in their late thirties or their forties and their sex drive is just not what it used to be. Having sex with their partner is you know, if it even makes the list, it's at the bottom of the list. The other thing that we see is uh, loss of muscle mass so that you don't have, you know, we talked about the hands with growth hormone. This is more your major muscles. So noticing that, you know, maybe you're doing burst training at the gym and you're just not seeing the response that you would expect to see. That would be a cue to check your testosterone. So testosterone has its hands in a lot of things, some of which overlap with growth hormone, but some of which are unique to testosterone, especially vitality, agency, confidence, and sex drive.
1: I love that. And that it's related to dopamine as well, right? When we have more, you know, you're you talk about your uh your clients and I'm sort of envisioning this like boss, you know, that sort of walks in and is like, "I'm here guys, like ready, you know, like ready for a yes. close up." Yeah, Part of that is, world. yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I have arrived. You know, it's like Beyoncé kind of like coming onto the stage. Totally. And it, it's very um very much related to our, you know, motivate our drive, our seeking, right? Um, so I, uh, one of the clinical signs, um, that I often will like my little like yellow hat, you know, my little clinical hat will be like, Hmm, when, you know, I have a patient who will say something like, you know, I just, I used to love, uh, you know, going to what, maybe it's salsa dancing or something. I used to love to go. And I just don't, I don't know. I just don't have the, the thi- it's not, I don't have it anymore. I don't have that oomph or that drive to go and, you know, go to the class or do the thing that really previously brought them, um, a lot of joy.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I, I think of it as the mess, like meh. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I don't really want to. I don't want to do those adventure things that I used to do. Now the pandemic has made that really tricky, right? Like it's a little harder. Uh, fortunately, things are opening up, and uh, that's less of an issue now. But yeah, I think that you know, not having that same sense of adventure, I think, is a really good indicator of testosterone and as you said it is connected to dopamine it's related to uh you know we think of it as exploration you know just not having that that same risk-taking confidence to go after some of those things that used to be really enjoyable
1: yeah sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, that's D R I N K L M N T dot com forward slash D R E S T I M A, and you will get a free elementt sample pack with any purchase. And so, how do we? I mean, we know testosterone naturally declines as we age. I'm a big proponent, I know you are, of resistance training as a proxy for helping to directionally improve that. What are some other things, and you talk about this from a nutritional perspective in the book, there are many things that we can do from a, you know, chemical, if you will, like when we're manipulating diet variables, how can we begin to improve our, our T levels or even just as a prophylactic, even if we, you know, I'm always an advocate of like, get your, like do a full panel now when you're feeling great so that you can, you know, in your perimenopausal years, you have a baseline to compare it to but is there, what are some things nutritionally that we might think to um, integrate into our daily lives to help as a prophylactic, or if someone has a, a, you know, they already have have seen a decline in testosterone.
0: So there's a lot of things that you can do that we talk about in the book. One of the first things is looking at your micronutrients. So there's certain micronutrients like copper and zinc that are involved in the production of testosterone. They're also involved in uh, the production of, uh, thyroid hormone. And so you want to make sure that you're getting sufficient levels of those micronutrients. And there's certain foods that are really rich in copper and zinc. You have to be careful with that because you want your ratio to be in balance. Usually going after a food-based way to address that can be very helpful. But some of us, you know, like I, I practice precision medicine. I test genomics in most of my patients. I have a genetic a variant that makes me less likely to absorb copper from the food that I eat. So I have to make sure that I get sufficient copper. So there's certain foods that um, I think are really helpful in terms of managing testosterone. We also talked previously about cutting back on sugar. We know that stress is a major factor. So I like to look at cortisol levels and get those back into balance. We talked about whey protein as a way of raising testosterone and growth hormone uh, exercise. And ultimately, you know, what I did was to simplify this and to put it into a four week protocol, which is to do a ketogenic diet for this therapeutic pulse. So not longer than four weeks, but really focusing for four weeks on these micronutrients and macronutrients that help to support the metabolic hormones. Wonderful. So let's talk
1: keto then because we've been we've been leading up to the crescendo. <laughs> I wanted I want to talk about keto for women. And you spend a, a a good amount of time in the book talking about what you call the keto paradox where we see and I'll let you uh, uh, you know explain it, but one of the things that I have found as well is when we're trying to find protocol we're trying to find literature to help direct our you know program design for our women. I remember not really finding much for her. It was just all really done on, you know, me search, right? It's like these men who are studying men. Um, So talk to us a little bit about how the ketogenic diet is not the same for women and why we see such a uh, profound response, uh, whether it's the literature or our clinical observation and patterns of why the ketogenic diet is so great for men.
0: Yeah, so I came up against the the keto paradox myself. That's how I first started to notice this issue, the sex difference with keto. And it it came up first when I did the Atkins diet with my husband back when we were engaged and we were getting ready for our wedding. He lost 20 pounds in a short amount of time. I maybe lost two pounds. It was so frustrating. And you know, I, I just kind of chalked it up at the time to well, you know, he's an athlete, he exercises more than me. I was seeing patients and you know, exercising as much as I could. But then you go forward 18 years later, uh, hopefully I'm getting the math right here. So around 2015, I was trying the ketogenic diet because I heard about it for epilepsy and for Alzheimer's disease and for weight loss. And I felt like, well, before I prescribe this to patients, I wanna try it myself. So once again, my husband and I went on the ketogenic diet, paid a lot of attention to macros, you know, got the ratio right, the 70-20-10, and uh, I did not lose weight. In fact, I gained weight. So I'm in my 40s at this point. My husband, of course, you know, again, dropped about 20 pounds. And that's when I realized, wow, you know, 90% of the literature on the ketogenic diet is in men and the ones that are done on women, mostly their adolescents, like with epilepsy and look at all the problems that they have. They've got more thyroid dysfunction. They've got, you know, 45% of them would lose their menstruation. So issues with uh, luteinizing hormone, pulsatility, estrogen, progesterone, probably testosterone and those folks as well. So that's what got me to look at this issue of the difference between men and women and why men have so much of a robust response to the ketogenic diet compared to women. We need more evidence and literature and research on women, but there's some other aspects to the keto paradox too, which is, I think of it as a medical treatment. I think of it as a medical intervention. It's not something that I think people should just uh, do on their own with no supervision and no, Guidance and recommendations about how to keep them safe because there's some people who respond so well to the ketogenic diet, both men and women, there are super responders. So we want to understand who those people are because those are the ones who are ideally matched to a ketogenic diet. The ones who uh, don't respond as a super responder, we want to make some adaptations for those women so that they can get a better response, more similar to what we see in men. And then there's folks who have issues with the ketogenic diet. And that's part of the paradox too. You know, there's some literature, I remember reading some papers by Siddhartha Mukherjee, who's an oncologist at Columbia. And he's been writing about the use of a ketogenic diet in different types of cancer. There's some cancers for which a ketogenic diet might be a really good idea especially the ones that feed on glucose. But then there's other cancers where it may not be a good idea. So there's a bit of a paradox and we wanna be able to understand this nuance. It's not a blanket statement that keto is good for everyone. I wanna be sure that that comes through loud and clear because we have to personalize. We have to figure out, is the ketogenic diet the right fit for you? Even if you lose weight and you have you know, better brain function is it creating inflammation elsewhere? Is it raising your uh, your low density, you know, your LDL, your lipoprotein? Is it affecting some of those inflammatory biomarkers that we need to be tracking? So, that's the keto paradox. Basically, it's that men do a lot better than women, but we want to then understand the why and how to address it.
1: Yeah, really well said. And I think, you know, to your point, I, I've been implementing the ketogenic diet uh, in clinic and online for, you know, since 2016. Uh, and I've seen the exact same pattern. So we have these super responders, as you described, people that need we need to, you know, maybe bring down their saturated fat content. We give them a bit more MUFAs and PUFAs. And then there's the people where their LDLP particle numbers, just it's like they're 3000 or 4000, yeah. and you know, and you're like, okay, this is not the diet for you Yes, and, and then you know t- you do a lot of genomics so then you kind of if you do a little bit of digging you're like oh, okay you're PPAR alpha you know you got all these all of these genes where you just do not do well with the metabolism of or you know April, you know apol proteins you don't have um uh the proper metabolism uh or the capacity to to metabolize fat so
0: yeah i'm glad you raised ldlp because i want to say a quick thing about this you know i i measure Advanced lipids uh, sounds like you do too on all of my patients before and after a four week pulse of keto, and this is not something that most mainstream physicians are doing. So doing this advanced lipid testing, where we're looking not just at you know what I think of as kind of second generation lipids, you know HDL, LDL, total cholesterol, and triglycerides, but we're looking at LDLP, we're looking at the particle number, the particle size, we're looking at HDL, VLDL, we're looking at lipo a, that kind of advanced testing, I think is really essential in terms of looking at the effect of something like a ketogenic diet, especially for folks who want to continue beyond four weeks. So this kind of testing, I wish more mainstream physicians did them, but uh, it's not always available. You have to ask for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when we talk when we kind of you know, if we come back to the difference between men and women, you talk about in the book the stress gap and the testosterone advantage. Can you expand on that in terms of when we're, you know, we've we've been talking about lipids, which I think is incredibly important. We wanna look at ratios and we wanna look at LP LP little A as you mentioned and L D L P. Um, how does the um constitution of a woman, maybe her total stress, chronic, acute, uh, you know, her testosterone Uh, play into her results on keto?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think part of why I failed the ketogenic diet is related to the stress gap. And part of the reason why, as I mentioned, my husband did so much better is related to the testosterone gap, the testosterone advantage. So the stress gap is that, you know, if we look at the annual survey that the American Psychological Association performs, we know that women experience more stress than men. So uh, then the question is, is this a sex difference that's biological or is it a gender difference in that women are expected to be more responsible for child rearing and to kind of manage the home more? Uh, That's not true in all households. I don't mean to make a general statement, but my experience myself, as well as with most of my patients is that women are bearing the brunt of more of the childcare and kind of home maintenance duties. And I think that leads to more stress. So there's, you know, there's, I want to applaud the men out there who like take an equal share or even more than an equal share. I love that. Um, But I, I think when you look at what we think of as dysregulation of the control system for stress, the stress response, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So how the brain talks to the adrenal glands and talks to other hormones as well, including your thyroid, your gonads, your gut, all of that is involved. But when it comes to the stress response in the sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, freeze, and how we're supposed to be in balance with the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest, you know, the chill out and relax, half of the autonomic nervous system, what we know is that women tend to get more jacked up. So a lot of that I think is socio-cultural, some of it's financial, some of it is that women experience more trauma, which I think is a big factor here. Uh, I don't know how much time we have to spend on that, but I check adva- ad- uh, adverse childhood experiences in all of my patients. We know that women tend to have more adverse childhood experiences than men do. We also know that people, you know, BIPOC patients have more adverse childhood experiences. So women tend to experience more trauma, and it it lives on in the body, and it can show up in terms of the, you know, this attempt with a ketogenic diet, as an example, to modulate these metabolic hormones. So some of us who are, uh, you know, I used to be like a a super producer of cortisol I used to make a lot of cortisol I've been able to get it more right sized as I've gotten older but when I make a lot of cortisol that does several things I know that it raised my raises my glucose I think you and I had a little Instagram thing where we were going back and forth about every time I give a talk like my glucose on my continuous glucose monitor goes up by 10 to 20 points kind of depending on the stakes of the talk. So. So stress is a huge factor and uh, you may have some additional follow-up that you want about that. I'll just say one quick thing about the testosterone advantage. So we talked about how testosterone is the most abundant hormone for women and should be. And for men, because they have 10 times as much, they have much more lean body uh, mass. They've got more muscles. I think I've got percentages in the book, which I can't remember off the top of my head, 50% more or something like that. And they, um, it just makes them when they when they try to lose weight, when they go on a ketogenic diet, they tend to have more robust response. And from the research that we've done, because we've done a lot of n of one experiments, that's you know one of the tools that we have in precision medicine. From the research we've done, we know that women who have less muscle mass and have a lower resting metabolic rate they tend to have less of a response to a ketogenic diet. That doesn't mean that they can't do it and still get benefits, it means that it takes longer. So those are some of the factors related to this cortisol issue, as well as the testosterone advantage. And
1: this is precisely why I think clinicians need to start altering our standards of care, right? So we wanna be considering age, menstrual status, race, gender, hormonal profiling, muscle mass, all the things that you just said, because that's, you know, to your, to your point around precision, precision medicine, that's how we, that's how we get results, right? That's how we, that's how we move the needle for these patients that have tried everything. I mean, I, you mentioned in the book, I've had this as well. People are like, I already tried keto. It did never I, n- didn't work for me. And it's like, okay, well, did you try a female-centric ketogenic diet or was it bacon, butter, burgers, and repeat? You know, was it like tubs of sour cream or did you have a lot of, you know, green vegetables and some of the other things that you talk about in, uh, in your book? So let's actually talk about the Godfrey Protocol because you have three, we've been talking a little bit about... Um, the therapeutic intervention of, uh, of ketosis that four weeks. Um, but you pre-frame that with detoxification and you also talk about intermittent fasting. So walk us through these tenants and why they're important as a, as an aggregate as a whole.
0: Yeah, well, this, this is a way of addressing some of those issues with, uh, cortisol and this, sensitivity that women especially have this vulnerability as well as the testosterone advantage. So the first thing that I noticed, um, cause I was one of those people who was saying I've tried keto and it didn't work. No, I tried it twice before it worked. So there was a lot of tweaking that I had to do. And one of the first things I noticed was that you've got to have those detoxification pathways open. If they're not open, Not much is going to work, you know, extreme measures might be effective, but extreme measures tend not to be sustainable. So those detox pathways, I think, are essential to open up before you start a ketogenic diet. So that means that you are getting uh, a pound of vegetables a day. And so we're talking about cruciferous vegetables. We're talking about cilantro. We're talking about the you know, the vegetables and the herbs that really help you with detoxification, that help you with all the pathways of detoxification that occur in the liver and that you're pooping every single day. So you probably see this too. I can tell you when I see a patient, I can look at my patient on Zoom and I can tell that the detox pathways are not open and unless they're being so attentive to this, most patients just don't realize that they're not detoxifying the way that they should be. Because the idea here is that once you start liberalizing more fat, you got to get rid of it. You don't want to hang on to it. You don't want to keep recirculating it. You don't want to oxidize it and have it affect your cardiovascular health. So we've got to have those detox pathways open. So that includes eating vegetables, It includes you know, broccoli sprouts, having maybe a daily smoothie, which I think can be a really good bridge to help with detoxification and that you're pooping every single morning and it feels like you are completely evacuating. So that's the first tenant. Anything you wanna say about that?
1: No, I love it. I'm I'm all in because I, you know, people, you have people and they'll say, yeah, I have like a couple of bowel movements a week. And you're like, a week? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you know, we need, you need to be emptying, you know, you need to be on the toilet, as you said, in the morning. Usually that would make sense. If you have a proper circadian rhythm of cortisol, you should be evacuating uh, the bowel in the morning and maybe, you know, another time or two. And the only other thing I would add is it's the quality of the stool as well is important. If you have little, you know, I call them like rabbit poos. Like if you have these little hard, hardened, dehydrated little pellets that you're passing, like you want, you want a snake, like you want a big one, consi- like one consistent, uh, you know, a bowel, uh, you know, bowel movement and you want it to ideally not break, but if it does, you know, one or two pieces and you want it to be round and all of those things. You don't, don't necessarily want to see the things that you ate in your bowel as well. Like it should, ne- you may see a couple of like, you know, pieces of corn in here and there, but uh, generally yeah. you want it to be, I mean, maybe that's a little TMI for, <laughs> for my Betty's but that, I, ta- I talk about this kind of stuff with my patients. It's like the, the t- you need to look at the quality of your poo as well.
0: Yeah, we need to be talking about it. I don't know why people are so reluctant to talk about it. I mean, it, it always cracks me up with my NBA players who were like, you want me to what? <laughs> you, want me, you want me to test that? And I'm like, yeah, because yeah. it's going to tell us a lot about what's right. going on with your intestinal permeability and your, you know, how you're metabolizing hormones, whether you're making short-chain fatty acids, which are so important for metabolism. Yes, right. yes, we want to look at it. And, you know, this is one place where I think Dr. Oz has really advanced the cause because he said, you know, when you have a bowel movement, it should be like an Olympic dive, you know, just kind of this (laughs) lovely S shape that goes right from your, your anus into the toilet bowl. And there's not much of a splash and it's, uh, yeah, it's well formed. I love that. Yeah. yeah, and it should
1: feel amazing. You should feel like you said completely evacuated. You should feel like a million bucks. So yeah, like, yeah. <sighs> yeah. <Ha-ha. laughs> All right. So we got we got detox. You do is the, is a the detox a week or two, or you nuance that depending on the needs of the patient. I would assume.
0: So I have people focus on it for a week, Um, and you can you know start to line things up. It, what I find with the ketogenic diet for people who haven't done it before is that. It takes some organization, right? It takes clearing out the pantry of all of those things that tend to uh, uh, be sabotaging. We also, you know, you have to go grocery shopping. You're going to be buying different foods than maybe you've bought in the past, even if you have been low carb for a while. So I like to give people kind of a week of prep where they're really focused on this detoxification and it depends on where you're starting as always, you know, there's some people who already have a bowel movement once or twice a day, and they need to do less in terms of opening up those detox pathways. So we just want to make sure that they're in place before we really get to the hard work of implementation.
1: Okay. So now we have therapeutic ketosis uh, or nutritional ketosis, and that would be three weeks of that, correct? Correct.
0: So I like three weeks. I mean, there's a lot of folks who will get into ketosis before that three week, uh, you know, during the first week when they're doing their detoxification, kind of depending on what they're eating. And then there's a transition phase. I'll just briefly mention it here that uh, I still like for folks to stay in ketosis and to be testing their carb limit. So we'll come back to the carb limit. But yes, during that three weeks of focused implementation of a ketogenic diet. This is a very clean, uh, well-formulated ketogenic diet. As you said, it's not the, the bacon and the butter and the fat bombs. It's you know making sure that you're feeding your microbiome, that you're sending information for the DNA of your body that allows you to adjust these metabolic hormones and also helps to flip that switch toward metabolic flexibility so that you're switching from burning sugar, which most of us are doing before a ketogenic diet, to having the flexibility to go back and forth to uh, burn fat versus burn sugar, depending on the type of fuel that's available. So that's called metabolic flexibility. That's really, that's the name of the game when it comes to a ketogenic diet.
1: Wonderful. And then where does fasting play in? This is another area where I think again, just like keto is different for women. I think fasting is also different for women. Um, but it's, I like the way that you describe it in the book. You say it's almost like a backdoor, uh, to ketosis or as a way of amplifying it, particularly, and you talk in the book about different morphologies of patients. So like a woman who maybe has more of a central, um, fat deposition through the tummy, you know, we might call that an apple. Or someone like myself who has a booty <laughs> like a hip, you know bigger in the hips and the butt, like more of the pear, uh, yeah. and then we have you know this the what you call the celery, so someone who is uh, you know more thin sort of top to bottom. so how does the fasting well describe fasting and then how that sort of helps to amplify um each of these different um uh, morphologies,
0: yeah, so. Fasting, I think, is really fascinating. And even though it's a very old technology, it's really having a renaissance right now in terms of the volume of data, the literature that we have on it, the effect of fasting on hormones. You know, it mostly has a very salutary, beneficial effect on hormones. And those those three different body types are related to metabolic hormones. So women who have more of that apple shape, they tend to have more issues with insulin resistance, might have more issues with growth hormone or a combination of the two. Those women who have more of a, um, you know, the bigger hips and booty like I have. And uh, I haven't met you in person, but I'll I'll take you at your word. Uh, So those of us who are a little more hippie, um, you know, we I have my estrogen is in really good balance now. But in the past, I've had more estrogen dominance, and I've had more issues with um, you know estrogen disestrogenism contributing to my difficulty with weight loss. And then the more celery shape, you know, the person I always think of here is my friend J.J. Virgin. And I think she would agree with this. yes, Right. I love J.J. I just was talking to her yesterday and I was, you know, I was saying to her, you know, you watched me when I gained 25 pounds after my first book, because I was sitting on my butt, like writing that book uh, for years. And I would do that at night, you know, after seeing patients, you saw me gain all this weight and I could not get it off. I could not get it off until I did this diet. I figured out this, you know, this ketogenic program together with detoxification, together with fasting that really allowed me to, um, I wouldn't say I'm a celery. I'll probably never, I will never be a celery, but I was saying to her, you know, I I admired what you could do at the gym. I admired how little body fat you had. She's a celery. So, I didn't aspire to be a celery, but I definitely desired to fit into the clothes that were in my closet. And um, so, for the celery type, often that's a little more um, testosterone. You know, there's a little more resilience when it comes to cortisol levels, there's a little less. Less likely to have estrogen dominance. These are total generalizations. These but are my fasting. athletes. My athletes are usually athletes. They're yeah. Always so JJ is an athlete. Yeah. yeah. She's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So athletes for sure. And um, so in terms of these different types, you can kind of adjust the way that you do the protocol, which I talk about in the book based on what body type you have. And it just, you know, it's another way of accessing these metabolic hormones and then modulating them with diet and lifestyle. So the thing about fasting that you wanna be aware of, and I'll refer people to the book to learn more about how to adapt this based on your body type. But the the thing about fasting is once again, men have an advantage. So when it comes to fasting, we know that uh, it can be more stressful for women. So there's some data, for instance, looking at the effect of fasting on growth hormone. And it can raise growth hormone pretty high, especially if you do a 24-hour fast or longer. And what I find for most of my patients is that it's a little too stressful to fast for longer. Now, some of them do it under medical supervision and I think that is totally reasonable. I'm a big fan of using a continuous glucose monitor if you want a more extended fast, which I would say is more than 16 to 18 hours. But for, you know, if we just try to make a statement for people who don't want to do a lot of testing or wear a continuous glucose monitor, I would say that fasting for 14 to 16 hours is really what is proven to be the most safe. It's also been shown to be associated with a lower risk of breast cancer it's what uh, a lot of the longevity experts like Vulture Longo recommend in terms of um, the total duration of metabolic rest where you're not eating of aiming for 14 to 16 hours.
1: Yeah, I love that. I, I also like to just myself personally, um, and I've talked about this and wrote about this as well. I For women who are still in their menstrual years to consider your menstrual cycle, you know, the week before I get my period, I'm not doing a 16-8. Like I'm yeah. going to be eating a 12. I do a 12-12 because I'm naturally hungrier there. And I used to try and, you know, white knuckle my way through that week. Like, no, I got to do, I got to eat the, this way. This is the way. And I, I think, you know, for women in general, I mean, you talk, you you talk about this in the book around and the consequences for women and weight, like you mentioned, you know, it affects wages and it affects our progression in our career and, you know, our waist circumference. I think you talked about it being related to, uh, you know, promotions and things that are not related like that at all to women, to to men. Unfortunately. Yes. Unfortunately. Exactly. And I, and I think that we have to really be considering that we are, you know, not just smaller versions of men with more annoying, you know, hormones. And I, I think when you begin to embrace that, you know, your, you know, your female biology, your female physiology, it just becomes easier. Like you don't have this, um, you know, mental, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, this dance between, you know, it's almost like the, if you watch like the Bugs Bunny, you know, I'm totally dating myself, but you'd have like the little angel and the devil, like telling, um, you know, telling the character what to do. You just sort of, you're like, okay, but it's because I'm pre-menstrual right now. And I know that I have and you know, my metabolism is up. I know that I'm going to crave more food. So I'm just going to eat maybe more. I'll have maybe a pound and a half of vegetables today instead of just a <laughs> pound,
0: right? <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, I love that. I love that you talk so much about the menstrual cycle and how that can be leveraged toward making you, um, you know, really feel more aligned and syntonic with what your biology is requesting of you. We know, for instance, that, um, you know, the time if for the athletes who are listening, the time to go for your personal best, the time to go all out—I love the Peloton and I love Matt Wilpers and Power Zone training—and my time to go for my my best FTP is right at ovulation, so right when estrogen is peaking and testosterone is peaking and progesterone has not quite you know come up yet, like that's the time to go for your personal best. And that week before your period, the seven to 10 days before your period, that's where I see a lot of my patients come out of ketosis. Like they've been in ketosis for a while and they pop out of it in that week before their period. And it's because of these hormonal shifts that are going on. And we wanna be working with them rather than against them. Now, some women are really good at this. They have that, uh, the term for it is introception Like they really have this tremendous ability to tune into what's true for them, you know, to be guided for uh, what to do with fasting, to be guided for uh, how many carbs to eat, because, you know, most of us have more carb cravings the week before our period. Women with PMS eat about two hundred and sixty percent more carbs the week before their period. So we just want to be mindful of these things. Some of us, you know, who have gone through medical training, I think, kind of stamped out that interoception, or we're trying to develop it again, and we're less good at it. And so, uh, that's where this kind of guidance, I think, can be more helpful.
1: That's so good. I I love um, this idea of sinking into your body. You know, I think for someone who is as driven and accomplished um, as you are, you know, it's it's very easy to you know, just kind of, I mean, at least for me, I notice. like, I like to stay in my head. It's like safer there. Like I can do the predictions and I can do the, you know, the logistics and the strategy and all the things, but to kind of sink in and say, how am I, how am I taking care of you girl? Like, you know, how are we doing? Like, do you need a, de- you need some recovery? You know, that, that is a, um, it is, I am a work in progress there. It's still a skill that, um, that I'm, I'm, I'm developing, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis because it's, you know, for many, and even just in the, you know, this is a different conversation, but the society that we live in is very dopamine and testosterone based. Like we're talking about low T, which is important to fix, but we're, we're, we're praised for the accolades, we're praised for the hunt, like we're praised for the, you know, the fruits of the hunt. You know, we're not praised for taking a recovery day. We're not praised for, you know, sinking and having that developing that
0: interoception that you were talking about. So,
1: um, I love that
0: point, Stephanie, because, um, as you were talking, I I felt like you could be describing what it is inside my body as well, because I am so well-trained cognitively Like I'm so good at, you know, sort of hearing about something like, you know, four week ketogenic diet with detox and intermittent fasting. Okay, go, let's, let's go do it. And it's a cognitive yes, but I need to make sure it's a whole body. Yes. Right. I need to make sure that my heart is right there. I need to make sure that my gut and the rest of my body, like my body intelligence is behind it. So I think that, that point about the whole body, yes, is so essential. And you're right, we are, our entire system of reward is based on most of us being stressed and kind of adrenalized as we go after whatever it is we're driven toward with our ambition. And there are other ways to achieve what we're seeking that don't involve you know, running us into the ground and getting our cortisol too high and then you know, maybe too low or driving our growth hormone too low or driving our testosterone too low and our insulin too high. There are ways to be in the world that allow these metabolic hormones to support you. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I think that's, really that's why I wrote the book. That is why I wrote the book because uh, it's not so much that, okay, we're going to fix your insulin and you're never going to have a problem with it again. No, what we're going to do is we're going to work on these diet and lifestyle changes so that we can really personalize what is going to help you be your best self with your whole body, yes, going forward.
1: Yes. And it gives you tools like lifelong tools, you know, so you can go into it and out of it and you can modify it, whether you're 35, 45, 75, etc. Yes. So let's, let's just finish off the Godfree protocol with transition. Um, And then I'd like to ask you how you have implemented this into your, uh, into your daily life. So once you finish this three week nutritional ketosis, you've achieved, you know, the Holy Grail, you're producing ketones. What do we do after that? What happens after that?
0: So I am a fan of transitioning to a more balanced uh, food plan. And what that is for most of my patients is a lower carbohydrate, um, extra virgin olive oil rich form of the Mediterranean diet. Now, if I eat a Mediterranean diet, kind of a classic Mediterranean diet, I will gain weight. So I've had to customize this over time. I've had to figure out, okay, here's my carb limit. So when I first started in 2015, I had like a barely imaginable carb limit, I could hardly eat any carbs, I was carb intolerant. And now I'm at a point where I can tolerate carbs, I can even stay in ketosis, and get much more carb servings than I had, uh, you know, back in 2015. So the transition is about what is your sustainable long term strategy with food? And how do we define that? Because we can do it with a scientific basis. So I like to use uh, I like to use a number of different things. I use a few devices to look at ketones and glucose, and to add carbs so that we're doing only about a five gram load at a time to see how much high how much higher you can go and still get the benefits of your metabolic hormones being back in place. So we define this carb threshold. And then uh, we use, I talk about some of the different tests that you can use, like looking at glucose and uh, blood ketones. You can also use breath ketones. I like to look at the glucose ketone index, which I talk about a fair amount in the book in the transition phase. And it's, you know, it's, it's similar to an elimination provocation diet where we've eliminated uh, certain carbohydrates. We've given a moderate amount of protein and a larger amount of healthy fat, and now we were we are slowly transitioning to change those ratios to see how your body responds. So that's the guidance in terms of the transition. And then the super juicy part is okay. Well, what happens after that? And you know, there's a lot of different answers here. I don't like to just give myself as an example because uh, people are very different from me. And we have to see what's true for the individual. But I can tell you, for instance, I had one patient who was a case in this book who lost about 15 pounds when she went through the four week protocol. And in transition, she said, listen, I'm feeling so good. I want to keep going. So we checked her advanced lipid markers. We looked at a number of different things. We decided that she could keep going. She ended up losing a total of 40 pounds she just texted, uh, this woman is, um, in her late forties. She has texted me a photo of herself in a bikini with her daughters. And I was just like, I am, I just love this. I love how empowered she feels. She's got so much more energy and that's a good example of someone who ended up continuing in ketosis, but working with her carb limit because she's also a vegetarian. And so, you know, uh, vegetarian diet tends to be a little more carby, um, to answer your question about what I do, I come in and out of ketosis. So I, I have ongoing experiments. You know, my latest experiment that you might see on Instagram is that I'm somewhat in love with, um, almond flour and cassava flour tortillas. And so I've been trying like a little bit, just small doses to see if I can stay in ketosis, and I have been able to stay in ketosis. but I do come out of ketosis occasionally, which is fine. Um, I also still do intermittent fasting because I'm just not hungry. So I eat primarily for information for my cells, for my DNA, and I'm less, you know, kind of racked by hunger the way that I was before I developed this protocol.
1: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yes. I, I, I have developed feelings for new foods as well as I've, you know, improved my carb carbohydrate tolerance. I used to never have things like sweet potatoes. I enjoy them and I'm still able to, you know, a certain portion of them, I'm still able to stay in in ketosis as well. And it's nice to be able to develop feelings for all sorts of foods. It's just, you know, so freeing and lovely. So, it is. so we are, we're releasing this conversation the week that your book is coming out. So if you're listening to this, you can go to any online retailer in stores. Um, the book is called women, food, and hormones. Do you want at any other places if people want to work with you, if there's anything, um, and there, there it is. If you're seeing this on video, <laughs> uh, where can people find more about you? I, you know, and, and plug your Instagram, which I think is just such a beautiful, um, example of your work. It's always evidence based. You have great posts. I always read them and, and enjoy them. But where can people find more about you, your online presence, if they want to work with you, tell them all the things.
0: All the things. So uh, sarahgothreadmd.com is the website where most of this happens. So there's uh, at sarahgothreadmd.com, you can get some free gifts that help you go deeper with the material that's in the book. That's probably the best way to go. In terms of working with me, um, I do have about a one year uh, wait list right now, but That's through Thomas Jefferson University. So you can reach out to the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. Uh, We've got an amazing staff there that helps us. And there's lots of other clinicians besides me who do this type of work at the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences.
1: Wonderful. Well,
0: Sarah, you did
1: not disappoint the first time I had such a great time with you. This was a wonderful, uh, you know, nerd sermon on keto and women and hormones. Nerd sermon. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> we went to church today, <laughs> went to keto church, and you just like your book is fabulous. I wish you all the best. Congratulations on it. And I'm just looking forward to supporting you um, in the future in the ways that I can.
0: Thank you so much, Stephanie. I want to say a quick thing about you because. Um, I look forward so much to meeting you in person. You're just one of those benevolent people who just bring out the best in others. I just love what you're doing in the world. You're making the world a better place. You're helping us understand these really complex ideas uh, related to women's health and biology and metabolism. Just so grateful for what you do in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And when, you know, I am looking forward to the day that we meet as well, and you can expect a big bear hug from me. I can't wait. I'm going to jump on (laughs) you. Let's do it. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Gottfried on women, food, and hormones. And I wanted to leave you with a review that came in for the podcast last week. This is from uh, the username is serves you right, <laughs> very clever spelling from the United States of America, and the t- review is entitled "Dr. Stephanie gives me wings." I heard about Dr. Stephanie from my doctor. I told my doc how I just felt like I couldn't keep doing boot camps three days a week. I'm 48, and I just felt like all the jumping around and running was leaving me spent. My doctor suggested I listen to Dr. Stephanie's podcast about exercising according to your menstrual cycle, and I was immediately intrigued. I listened to one episode and I fell hard. I purchased the audiobook and finished it within a few days. Then I bought the book because I knew I needed to highlight several sections. And meanwhile, I'm gobbling up her podcast episodes during every walk, every chore and spare moment of my time. She has such a genuine energy and ability to break things down to help me understand how my hormones relate to so many aspects of my mind and my body. You feel her warmth and zest for knowledge in her voice. I get so energized after I listen to her podcast. Dr. Stephanie is my Red Bull. She gives me wings. Well, I just I mean, I smiled ear to ear when I read this pod uh, this review and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to write this. I'm so happy that your doctor recommended you to find this podcast, listen to it and that you're getting the value that you are. I mean, this is why I do this. Um this is why I do the pod. So, thank you so much that, you know, to know that I'm making a difference in your life. Um, I just, I can't tell you what that means to me. It's, it's wonderful. So thank you. And if you, uh, and that is, you're such a Betty, by the way, like for you to purchase the audiobook and then buy the book, cause you know, you need to make highlights. Like you are uh, the, <laughs> you know, the Betty in me sees the Betty in you. So thank you for that. So if you are feeling like this podcast is giving you value in the way that this review uh, came in, I would love to see it. So please leave your review on iTunes. Five-star ratings are also wonderful. Just clicking five stars also helps uh, the algorithm and more Bettys find the pod. So with that, I bid you adieu. I thank you from the bottom of my heart and we'll see you later this week for Geeky Magic. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes you'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you.